so good to be together with all of you worshiping King Jesus and hearing your voices in unison, lifting high his name. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. I don't know if you pay any attention to this stuff, but I've noticed that there seems to be a lot of talk these days about radical agendas afoot to overthrow the political system, talk about resetting the economy, tearing down the social order. Some of those are unfounded conspiracy theories, to be sure, and others seem to be more well-documented. Either way, there there seems to be just in our culture at this time a, a particular appetite to hear about these kinds of things because it seems like something's up. We we hear people use phrases like threat to democracy, threats to our our very way of life, the great reset, and and for sure, trust in our so-called institutions of authority like the academy and the government and the media. Trust in those institutions is basically non-existent. It's hard these days to, oftentimes, to tell the difference, to discern at all between a real headline, and a satirical one. Have you noticed that? And all of that can certainly cause a lot of fear and anxiety about the future. Where where is all of this going? What is happening in the world right now? Even if there is no nefarious plot at work, you you do get the sense things are just kind of shifting and shaking and coming loose. House prices are out of control Prices at the pump are out of control. You can start at $16 an hour at Taco John's. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. What do you and I need in times like this? Times of social unrest and times of political chaos and times of economic uncertainty. What we need... This Christmas, more than nostalgia, more than that sentimental feeling you get when you hear voices singing, let's be jolly, you need soul-stabilizing truth. You need some sense of reality. What is actually happening in the world? What is God up to all the time, no matter what? other people are up to, no matter what powerful people are up to. What is God up to in the world? What you need more than anything is to know that God does, in fact, have a great and glorious and global purpose for human history, and that God is unswervingly committed to carrying out that purpose in human history. Not just after it, in history. God is working right now through Jesus Christ, his anointed king. We need to know that. Not just know it, but be convinced of it. Be settled in the conviction of that in in our hearts. You, You need to know that God's purpose will outlast. It will overshadow. It will endure far beyond the schemes of man. But what we need is the reality that was inaugurated at the first Christmas. We need that reality that broke into the world there to 
to inform our thoughts and to shape our desires and our ambitions and our hopes and our plans, whether you're concerned about current events or not. You might be blissfully unaware of all of that. You need to know what God is up to in the world and what's so incredible. But what we never get over is the fact that we can know what God is up to because he speaks to us in his word. He reveals to us his purposes. 2 Samuel 7 contains the covenant that God made with King David. It's called the Davidic covenant. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It happens to be the longest speech from God to his people since God spoke to Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Levitical Law, all of that huge revelation from God. Fast forward through all of Scripture. This this is the longest speech God has made since that point, and it builds on God's previous promises and his covenants that he had made with, with the patriarchs like Adam and Abraham and Moses. And and this covenant sheds new light and it reveals new details about how God intends to deal with humanity, how God purposes to to save this sin-cursed world. And like the other promises and covenants we've looked at over the last two weeks in this Advent series, this one also foretold God's unstoppable purpose in the world would be fulfilled through a child who would be born for us. I want to invite you to follow along, and if you're physically able to stand with me out of regard for God's Word, I'm going to preach from 2 Samuel 7 and read starting the second half of verse 11 through verse 16. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in the first, uh, excuse me, the second half of verse 11. This is God's holy Word. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give thanks to you that you speak to us that you reveal to us. You have not left us in the dark. You have not left us in confusion, wondering, grasping, wandering. You have revealed to your people down throughout history, and here we stand with the fullness of your revelation. You spoke in times long ago through the prophets, but you have spoken in these last days through your Son, and we behold him, and so we pray that you would cause our hearts to see and behold the glory of Jesus revealed in this text and make us to trust him, that we would be fearlessly optimistic people 
for the sake of your name. Amen. You may be seated. So in 2 Samuel 7, it starts out in verses 1 through 3, David tells the prophet Nathan about this plan he has to build a house for God. He, he just brought up in chapter 6 the ark of God into Jerusalem, the city that David has conquered. He's taken, he's going to make that his city, his capital. He's going to set up his throne there. Next thing on his mind after conquering his enemies and taking this city, hey, we, we need a temple where God can dwell. He has a house built for himself. Now he purposes to build a house for God. And that, that's a noble desire. It's a logical next step in the progression of Israel's history. In fact, Deuteronomy 12, 5, through Moses, it said that after God's people possessed the promised land and destroyed the foreign gods and tore down all of the altars to, to foreign deities, that they were to seek the place that the Lord your God would choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So, it's not out of nowhere David's thinking, what place is God going to choose to make his habitation among us? Let's do that. Let's get the ball rolling. And seeing no reason not to proceed, Nathan encourages David, go for it. The Lord is with you. Do it. And then the very next verse, 2 Samuel 7, 4, says that same night the word of the Lord came to David. And in the following verses, God poses a question to David. Would you build a house for me? Would you build a house for me to dwell in? Through Nathan, God reminds David, God has always been with his people. And he has been with them on the move. He's been with them in their wanderings. He's been with them in the desert. He's been with them wherever they've been. He's dwelt in a tent. He's just fine with that. He doesn't need any house built out of wood by human hands. He's with them even when there's no physical permanent structure for God to dwell in. As God says in Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He doesn't need buildings built by human hands. But then look what happens next in verses 8 through 17. This is the, the shocking twist in the narrative, the, the dramatic point of the entire passage. Rather than permitting David to build a house for the Lord, the Lord announces that he himself will build a house for David. Flips it completely around. Verse 5, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Verse 11, no, the, the Lord will make you, a house. And there's a play on words here. The house David planned to build for God was a, a temple. The house God will build for David is a dynasty, a royal line. The way that the house of Windsor refers not to a, a physical house, but to the, the British royal family. The Lord will make you a house, a royal lineage and the rest of the chapter contains David's prayer of response to God, which gives us some clue as to how we should understand this covenant God made with, with David. Look at verses 18 and 19. Then David, uh, King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction 
for mankind. First, David is overwhelmed by God's kindness to him thus far. The first part of God's promises is communication to David through the prophet Nathan in verses 8 through 11 tell of wonders God had already accomplished or would accomplish in David's own lifetime. I took you from the pasture that you should be prince of my people, verse 8. I've been with you wherever you went, verse 9. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, verse 9 again. I will make for you a great name, verse 9 again. Verse 11, I will give you rest from your enemies, God is saying to David, all this I have done for you and I will do for you in your lifetime. In all of his dealings with man, God makes it clear. It always works this way. God is the one who works for those who wait for him. He works for his people. He is the one working, doing, accomplishing, securing, saving. And David's overwhelmed when he just thinks, at what God has done for him thus far. And yet, as glorious and significant as those acts of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to David have been, they are, David says, a small thing. Literally, insignificant. In comparison to what God reveals about what he was going to do in the future, after David's lifetime. Concerning those promises, David says, you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. So David understands that this extends way beyond his lifetime, way beyond his son's lifetime. This is way out into the future. How far beyond? For a great while to come. The Hebrew word refers to the distant future, not not just tomorrow, not just a few years down the road, a long time from now. In fact, 1 Corinthians uh, 1 Chronicles 17, 17, which is a parallel account, in that account, David says, you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. He, he understood God is talking about generations from now, his plans and his purposes on earth. And it's so huge that David looks at all of God's past faithfulness and says, all of that is just like nothing compared to what you're going to do And finally, David says in verse 19, this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Two weeks ago, we heard the proto-evangelium, the first gospel which God himself announced when he cursed the serpent in the garden. And he, he made a promise that he would send an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. God preaching the gospel. And then we heard last week, God's covenant with Abraham, in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul can say in Galatians 3.8, Scripture was preaching the gospel to Abraham when God said, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The gospel is proclaimed there. Likewise, David here seems to grasp something of the magnitude of what God is saying. This is a revelation not just for David and his family. This is not just some... Fascinating tidbits that generations from now, his descendants will look up on Ancestry.com. This is not just pertaining to him and his family line. This is instruction for humanity, all mankind, whether you're an Israelite or not, the entire world, all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. This is a revelation from God that pertains to the world. One scholar says you could translate that. 
This is the charter by which humanity will be directed. This reveals how God is going to deal with the world, how he's going to save the world, how he's going to set things right, how he's going to relate to you. So what does God reveal here about that plan for the world? A plan that outlasts and overshadows all of the schemes of man, all of the plots, all of the conspiracies, all of the the raging of the nations, a plan that God is carrying out in human history. What does God reveal about that plan here? I want to show you three soul-stabilizing and hope-producing realities about God's unstoppable plan. First, God promised David that he would establish an eternal king. This promise is emphatic. It's, it's emphasized in the fact that God repeats it twice. It, it bookends the, the specifics of the covenant he makes with David. It's at the beginning and the end of it. And both times God repeats it, he, he speaks of it from three different angles. God promises to give David and his offspring an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. An eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. Those are three different ways of looking at the same promise. But all of those are emphasizing this is eternal. This is going to be fixed and established forever. The house, verse 11, refers to the, the offspring, the king, the man himself. There's going to be an eternal king. The kingdom refers to the realm, the domain of the king's rule. Because what is a king without a kingdom? Somebody said you know, a leader without any followers is somebody just out taking a walk. If there's going to be a king forever, he has to have a domain. He has to have a place where he rules and people over whom he rules. So there's going to be an eternal kingdom. And then the, the throne. The throne represents the king's position of authority and power. In a similar way, we could speak of the president and his office. The Oval Office is another way of referring to the president. The United States is the domain, the nation, where the president has authority. So the king and the kingdom and the throne, it's all talking about the same thing from three different angles. And the primary characteristic of the king and the kingdom and the throne is permanence. It's eternal. The word forever appears eight times in this chapter. Three times in God's promise to David. Five times in David's prayer of response to God. God says, verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in the summary, verse 16, God says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How long does this kingdom endure? Until forever. Forever. Now to appreciate that promise, just consider an eternal kingdom is completely unheard of in human history. Nobody's ever heard of an eternal dynasty. I mean, if there's one trend that's clear from history, it's that kings and kingdoms rise to great prominence, power, and glory, and then they fade into oblivion, like Alexander the Great. Wow, what world dominance. Remember that guy from middle school, history class? (laughs) He's just in a textbook now. Dynasties die out and empires collapse and global superpowers just kind of fade into the annals of history, collect dust in our collective memory. But God promised David an eternal dynasty. 
The only problem is David's dynasty lasted some 400 years, which is impressive if you look up all the dynasties that are recorded in, in human history. 400 years is a pretty good run, but hardly eternal. In the, in the 6th century BC, Babylon conquered Jerusalem and carried David's heir into exile, and no son of David ever sat again on the throne in Jerusalem. So what do we make of this promise? Did the exile mean God's promise had failed? Not at all. In fact, this covenant God made with David is the hope that sustained the nation of Israel throughout their exile. They kept coming back in their own faith and in their prayers to this promise. God, you promised you were going to put a son of David on the throne forever. We're trusting you to do that. And so the prophet Isaiah foretold, Isaiah 11.1, 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember, David is the son of Jesse. So what's the stump of Jesse? The chopped down dynasty of David. Chopped down by the Babylonians. Just a stump. It looks like it's over. And then a shoot springs up from it. A branch bearing fruit. The prophet Amos in Amos 9.11 says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David, the tent of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. Remember God said, I'm going to build you a house. What happens when the house is dilapidated and fallen down? God says, I'm going to repair it. I'm going to build it up and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. God meant to keep this promise. And so there are two ways that an eternal dynasty could be fulfilled. One would be an unending succession of male heirs who become king and sit on the throne. I think the longest running stretch right now in the world is in Japan, going back like 1,200 years. Or, that, that's the typical way we think of a dynasty, or it could mean a single heir who lives forever, which is understandably not the typical way we think of a dynasty, because nobody lives forever. But that's how God kept his word to David. Paul says in Romans 1, 3 through 4, that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He is the eternal king. And when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father on high, he sat down on an eternal throne. And he began at that time, 2,000 years ago, he began then to rule forever. Some people, even Christians, don't, don't quite get this. They think like someday Jesus will come back and then he'll begin to reign forever and we can't wait till he starts reigning. He started reigning forever 2,000 years ago or else God's word to David is not true. He began to reign forever. He was inaugurated as the royal son of David. In his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter explains it like this, Acts 2.29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried very dead. And his tomb is with us to this day, if you want to go check it out for yourself. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to give uh, to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, 
and of that we are all witnesses. You you get why this was such an earth-shattering announcement that the apostles began to preach to the world? That promised king has come. He's been raised from the dead. He is now ruling and reigning over all nations on earth forever from this day forth. He is God's appointed king. He is the king who rules an eternal kingdom from his eternal throne. Second, God promised David that he would send a royal priest. David wanted to build a temple to replace that that mobile tent, the tabernacle, where, where God specially manifested his presence and his glory to his people. And God said to him, no, not you, not yet. First, God would build a house, a dynasty for David, and then one of David's descendants would build a temple. Speaking of that offspring of David, God says in verse 13, 2 Samuel 7, he shall build a house for my name. He shall build a house for my name. I'm going to build your house, and then your offspring, he shall build a house for my name. Now, it seems that promise was immediately fulfilled in David's son, Solomon, because that's exactly what Solomon did. He built a magnificent temple. And the peace and the prosperity and the blessing that existed in Israel in Solomon's days was so unprecedented, so unheard of, that people probably wondered, is this the snake crusher? Is this the one promised to Abraham who's going to bring blessings to the nations? I mean, all of the foreign nations are coming to Jerusalem to meet Solomon to behold his wonder and his wealth and his power. The nations are literally coming here. This is it. It's happening right now in Solomon's time. And then Solomon tragically fell in sin and idolatry and his temple was desecrated, torn to the ground 400 years later. And the true fulfillment would come only through Jesus, who says at the beginning of his ministry in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus who declares in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Jesus comes as the true temple builder. And you, the church, you are the temple that he is building. The place where God now specially manifests his presence to the world. The the place where the nations are streaming. Where, where Where should people go on earth to encounter God? Gather with any corporate body of believers who love the Lord Jesus, preach his word, and sit under his authority. God manifests his presence there. Not only is Jesus an eternal king who brings God's rule on earth, he's a royal priest who mediates God's presence. And that's pointed to here in the text when right after God speaks to David, verse 18 says, then David went in and sat before the Lord which is kind of a shocking statement. Only the high priest was supposed to go into the the holy of holies in the tabernacle, right? At this point, the ark is in a tent. In chapter 6, before the Lord means in front of the ark, and David just goes in and sits in the presence of the Lord. He, He has special access to the presence of God that nobody else enjoys, and his son has even greater access. Not into a temple built by hands, but into the heavenly places. And so Jesus, the son of David, is the true high priest who 
freely enters the holy presence of God and grants to you who trust in him full and free access to the presence of God. He's the temple builder. Finally, God promised to raise up a faithful son. The structure of God's covenant with David shines a light on this father-son relationship between God and the eternal king. The promise of the eternal kingdom is, it's the bookend, the beginning, verses 12 through 13, and the end, verse 16, is sandwiched right in between those, right in the center. And the place of emphasis is this statement, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's the kind of relationship God is going to have with this king. And that is central to God's plan for dealing with the world. And, and this would have been a familiar concept to David in that part of the world, in, in Canaanite culture, in the Near East. Other people thought of a human king as a kind of representative of the deity of that land. In fact, there are other foreign nations there. We have records where they speak of their king as the son of the God of that nation. He's the son of the God, meaning he represents the king by his conduct and by his actions and his decrees. He's representing the God who rules this place. So that would have been a familiar concept to David. By establishing this covenant with David, God is showing that the royal son of David is going to resemble. He's going to represent God on earth. How will this infinite Invisible God be known? He's going to be known through a descendant of David who's going to live according to God's ways, who's going to rule according to God's law. Adam was, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, Adam was the first son of God, made in the image of God. Genesis 5 makes clear that language of in the image of means to be the son of. Adam is the first son of God, but David's heir is going to be a new Adam. In Exodus 4.22, God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn son. So we, we see that the, the Davidic king, he's going to be the one who embodies everything that the whole nation was supposed to be. But look at the rest of verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. That verse indicates the son's obedience, the son's faithfulness is fully expected. God expects this king to be faithful. He's going to discipline any unfaithfulness. What's going to happen to unfaithful sons of David? God is going to deal with them. He's going to hold them, call them to account. He's not going to overlook their disobedience. But underneath that requirement of faithfulness in the king, underneath it, before it, behind it, is a promise of God's faithfulness. On either side of this statement about the father-son relationship is God's promise, I will establish him. On both sides, verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, my steadfast love will not depart from him. Verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. So God is saying, I'm gonna be faithful to this king and I'm going to be the one who provides the faithful king. Saul was the king before David, and God brings up his name here and says, I'm going to deal with you differently, which is just a reminder, God doesn't have to work this way. He doesn't have to, but he's promising David something special. He himself, God himself, is going to see this through and make sure that it, makes sure that it happens. 
And at first that phrase, when he commits iniquity, might discourage us from recognizing this as a prophecy about Jesus, right? Because Jesus is sinless. So how could this be talking about Jesus? But in reality, this strongly encourages us to look to Jesus as the only possible fulfillment of this text. Because all of the sons of David before Jesus committed iniquity. They were all unfaithful. And what this covenant requires is a faithful son. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Solomon is a polygamist who worships foreign idols. And on down through the line we go. The only hope for an unfaithful world is the faithfulness of God to provide the faithful son who would walk in his ways. And that's what God provided when he sent his son Jesus to be born of a woman. Not only did God raise up a faithful son who committed no iniquity, God made that faithful son the substitute for sinners. Look back at the rest of verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. The Davidic covenant warned what the, the consequence would be for sons of David who failed to walk in God's ways, the rod and the stripes of men. And then comes Jesus, the true son of David, the only faithful king who never committed any iniquity and he himself was beaten and flogged and suffered the stripes of men. The father punished his son not for his own iniquity, but for the iniquity of his people. The, the faithful son bears the burden of sin for all of the unfaithful sons before him. God himself provided the sinless one to be the substitute sacrifice for sinners. But it doesn't end there because the faithful son has to be an eternal king. And so God says, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. He was beaten and he was bruised for our transgressions, but the father did not withhold his steadfast love from his son. He raised him up from the grave and exalted him above every name and made him, as Psalm 89, 27 says, the highest of the kings of the earth. So how should we respond to this king? I think every year, Christmas reminds the world, God's eternal king God's royal high priest, God's faithful son has come. Substitute for sinners. He's been born into the world. God's gift to humanity. And yet, those who love sin and darkness hate the light. And so people would rather distract themselves with reindeer and elves and Santa Claus but for those who love God, the reality that this king has come and that he is reigning right now, that provides hope for us in the midst of any darkness that we endure. It provides clarity for us in the midst of all of the mundane, humdrum stuff of life. God is at work in the world. God has set his king on his throne. And God's purpose is that all the nations would give their allegiance to him. That child born in a manger is God's appointed ruler of the world. He's the one through whom God is revealing himself to the world. No one comes to the Father except through him. 
There's no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. So do you know him? Do you personally know him? Do you trust in him? Does does he rule in your heart? Does he have the allegiance of your heart? If you are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then all of your sin and all of your guilt is paid for by his stripes. He bore your punishment when he suffered on the cross. And now his kingdom is advancing in the world in spite of all the efforts of sinful man to stand against it. His kingdom is advancing now in this world, not by force, not from the outside in, not from the top down, not by military might, not by political machinations. It's advancing through the proclamation of this gospel, of this king who suffered and died and was raised again for sinners. That's how his kingdom goes forth. And citizens of that kingdom are fearlessly optimistic because his throne is just, it's not threatened. It's never shaking. Everything around us can be in upheaval, transition, change. Not his throne. Not his dominion. So worship him. Worship him because he's worthy of your adoration. David responds to God's promise in sheer wonder because he saw what the outcome of God's plan would be. 2 Samuel 7, 26, David prays, your name will be magnified forever. Because of this, your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. What's the result of God creating a royal dynasty that lasts forever through Jesus? The name of God will be magnified forever. And if David responds with that kind of worship at the foretelling of the king, then how should we respond knowing that he has come and that every word of God has proven true? So let this be the the longing and the prayer of your heart. Let your kingdom come. That's what David prays. Verse 25 Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Do it. Let it be so. That's David's response. What can I say to all of this? Just do it, Lord. Let your kingdom come. And some people think let thy kingdom come translates loosely to get us out of here. But it doesn't. It means manifest your rule and your reign on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives. It means let the nations of the earth be discipled. Let them be baptized in the name of the triune God and let them learn obedience to God's eternal king who sits on his throne right now and will forever. Let's pray. All hail the name of Jesus. Even angels fall prostrate before you. And it is our joy to bring you praise, worship, adoration, affection, all of our trust, all of our allegiance, Jesus. Have the affection of our hearts. Be glorified in your people as we trust in you and walk in your ways. Let the name of God be magnified among all the nations of the earth as your kingdom comes and your will is done, as your gospel is proclaimed and as sinners are saved out of darkness and into your realm of light. 
Let your name be lifted high. Cause your gospel to go forth in this city. Cause us to be witnesses of the risen Jesus who has been exalted above all the kings of earth. We praise you and we love you. Amen.